This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Majority Report, The Young Turks, Counterspin, The David Pakman Show, The Tom Hartman Program, The Green News Report, and The Progressive. out of Australia right now in another sign of this country, uh, this country, this world, basically heading towards uh, a climate catastrophe, as if the smaller catastrophes that have been brought about by climate change are not enough, just a broader uh, catastrophe leading to ultimately, I think, uh, the deaths of possibly billions of people possibly billions the destruction of civilizations in many respects as we know it uh... because of the implications for our food supplies because of the implications of people being able to live in uh... in less and less areas of the world um, australia their bureau of meteorology has updated its weather forecasting chart to reflect rising temperatures. They've had to introduce two never used before colors, deep purple and pink, to the Bureau's temperature scale to indicate a range above 50 degrees Celsius. In other words, a range above 125 degrees Fahrenheit, give or less, a point or two. The scale has just been increased today, and I would anticipate it's because the forecast coming from the Bureau's model is showing temperatures in excess of 50 degrees, the Bureau's Climate Monitoring Prediction Unit Chief David Jones told the Sydney Morning Herald. Now, of course, we all know there's a cottage industry for people like this, and uh, this guy probably gets a bonus for every new color that he adds to the uh, temperature scale. Right? I mean, that's the story we're led to believe. It's an unintended consequence. So uh, just one more uh, indication of why climate change um, or the proof of the existence of climate change and how our nation and the world's refusal to deal with this problem um, is going to create more and more uh, problems for us in the future. So it goes on and on and on and on and on. thousand years I say and it goes on and on and on and on and on what language are your tears are your tears a series of announcements in the last couple of weeks and findings shows that climate change coverage, that is the news about climate change, will likely be reduced even from where it is today. We're going to go through some of what's been announced. Inside Climate News, which tracks media coverage of climate change, finds that the nation's five largest circulation newspapers will only, quote, have about a dozen reporters and a handful of editors among them whose primary responsibility is to cover the environment. The Huffington Post reports that in 2012, which was the warmest year on record, 
Coverage of climate change on major U.S. television networks and across media outlets dropped in 2012. In all, worldwide climate coverage decreased by 2% between 2011 and 2012, marking the fewest number of published stories since 2009. Think about that. The warmest year on record saw even fewer published reports about climate change than 2009. The Columbia Journalism Review also putting out a, a study finding that there are now just 19 weekly science sections left in American newspapers. That's down from 95 just a few decades ago. Science sections are often the place where you can find environmental news, news about what's happening in the ecosystem. And then there was this video, this clip from Fox News, headed by Rupert Murdoch, who has dabbled in climate change denialism, in which climate change is portrayed not even as a, quote, pressing issue. Watch this. We heard uh, during the, the, the inaugural address, we heard about climate change, we heard about gay rights, we heard about lots of issues, but nothing much about the deficit and some of the pressing issues, the, you know, the really pressing issues of our Well, did you hear that? Did you hear that? So we heard about climate change, but we didn't hear about many pressing issues. The idea is that climate change is not a pressing issue. None of this is good news, as I said to begin this segment. In a country where it's good news that 80% of the population believes that climate change is a crisis, that still leaves 20%, 20% who say it's not really a crisis. And that 20% is enough with the Senate filibuster to stop any national legislation whatsoever. Added on top of that, is a media that clearly doesn't want to cover this issue in any serious way. How are we ever going to get to a consensus on national legislation if we still don't have a consensus on the fact that climate change is a crisis? It's a huge question and it's a disturbing one. NBC Nightly News asked a serious question on January 13th, then offered an unserious answer. Anchor Lester Holt remarked at the top of the broadcast, quote, Strange winter. Why is it so cold where it should be warm and so warm where it should be cold? What is going on with all this extreme weather? Close quote. To answer the question, Holt turned to correspondent Kristen Dahlgren, who turned to the Weather Channel's Greg Postel, who explained that, quote, a very strong dip in the jet stream has placed itself over the western part of the country, and that's allowed some very cold air from Canada to move southward, close quote. Okay, but why is that? Postel never mentions climate change. But as the blog Climate Site explains, what's happening are changes in the jet stream's path and a phenomenon known as blocking, causing the jet stream to linger longer than usual in one place. Blocking is associated with extreme weather, says Climate Site, which quotes a long-term study showing how, as global warming adds more energy to the atmosphere, 
blocking events become more common. As opposed to providing this sort of background, Dahlgren merely marveled. Talk about upside-down weather. We should also talk about journalists refusing to acknowledge the story of climate change that's staring them in the face. Incredible Fox News stories from over the weekend. Fox News getting caught straight up lying, saying in a segment where they wanted to make it seem like solar power is just not really going to get going, they started saying solar power won't work in America because it's just not sunny like in Germany. So first we have Gretchen Carlson kind of saying, hey, the industry's future doesn't look too good. Let's listen to that first, Lewis, and then we'll skip forward to really the key point. Take a listen into solar power production. Well, today the industry's future looks dim as investments into green energy are beginning now to dry up. Oh, she just sounds so sad. A very contrite and, and sad-sounding Gretchen Carlson. Let's now go to the key point that people are just laughing hysterically at because it is just such nonsense that this expert says the following. Listen to this. Brace yourselves. Not safe for children, this type of nonsense. It's very, very damaging to children who are still forming opinions about science. Then they start to cut prices again, and then we start to throw more money. That's not a viable business what? solution. Yeah, well, was Germany, what was Germany doing correct? Are they just a smaller country that made it more They're feasible? a smaller country, and they've got lots of sun, right? right? They've got a lot more sun than we do. And the <laughs> problem is it, it's a cloudy day, and it's raining. You're not going to have it. I mean, right. this nation is, is vast and, and, and beautiful in its, um, in, in, its, uh -oh. in, in its makeup. In California, it's a great solution. Sure, right. Here on the East Coast, it's just not going to work. So you oh, have my, 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 my. This is just... This, this is just incredible i mean how th this is th this is a, a channel that calls itself a news channel ladies and gentlemen of course why hasn't anyone thought of that before why wouldn't you think that some scientist somewhere would have noticed that the east coast is less sunny than central europe and therefore incapable of producing solar power just can't do it at all well let's take a look at the map and see actually what the reality is so this map here that you see um, is basically a map measuring uh, measuring sunlight and and measuring the intensity of sunlight and the the annual averages that can be collected and as you can see on the bottom right of the image that's Germany and you can see from the color coding that the sunlight in Germany is very very close slightly more than the sunlight in where Lewis in Alaska, Alaska. in Alaska exactly right and if you compare most of the U.S., with the exception of what? With the exception of the, the northwest tip of the U.S., which has less sun and starts to go in those same directions as, uh, as Germany, we've got a ton of sun here. And, and compared, just for comparison's sake, if you look at Spain, which is on, on the uh, Iberian Peninsula in southwestern Europe, we have, in a lot of the country, actually even more sunlight than there. So it must be fun being Fox News and actually producing nonsense programming, right? Imagine sitting around and saying, how about this? We'll just say that solar power won't work here because it's just not sunny enough like it is, uh, like it is in Germany. What the hell? They'll eat it right up. And yeah. it basically happens. 
they will go to any length to uh, to just keep corporate profits high. I guess. Right. I mean that that's really the only objective I can think of. Yeah, and uh, you know I could just feel my IQ points dropping as I watched this. After I watched this, I actually I, I had to read some poetry to recover the two IQ points I lost from uh, from yeah. watching the story. Scour over the dictionary for a little while. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. We lived in Arizona, and the skies always had little fluffy clouds, and they were long and clear, and there were lots of stars. Ontario has phased out its uh, coal-fired power, which means that they are no longer going to depend on coal for energy. In fact, they only had two coal uh, power plants left, and they will be shutting those two down. Now, the interesting thing is the province owns those coal plants, so it's not like a separate entity or, an, or, or a corporation that has political power. You know, this is the problem we have here in the United States. Um, but basically, they want to focus more on renewable energies. Now, they're going to focus on natural gas, but they're also going to focus on wind and solar. Now, there's a little bit of irony here about Canada overall, if not Ontario, because, of course, the tar sands are in Canada, and that's even worse. Uh, and uh, But Ontario is going in the right direction here, and it's interesting what Anna uh, pointed out is that probably the best point, which is in the U.S., if it was a private-run corporation, we'd never be able to phase them out, right? They would just keep funneling money to our politicians to keep it open forever. So there's this fascinating phenomenon that if the government owns it, it's actually less likely to be corrosive to the citizens than if a private corporation owns it. That's not the case with everything. You know, sneakers got to be made by private corporations. And I don't even think that the government should own necessarily the coal power plants. I think that's an interesting conversation, right, as to who should own utilities and energy. Uh, companies and and I think that's somewhere in between, but it, it's just refreshing to see at least somewhere in the world where people actually respond to the wishes of their own citizens. You know, I, I haven't really given a thought to why I would support uh, coal being a private corporation, or but so far, based on the information I have, I feel like the government should probably own it. No, because if the government owns it and you don't have you know, the corruption that you have here in the United States, then you start to care more about the environment and the impact that these coal power plants are having. I mean, this isn't something that just came up out of nowhere. They realized that it caused more pollution, including to, in fact, according to one institute, the greenhouse gas emissions from Ontario's electricity sector have fallen from 4 million tons to 10 million tons over the past decade because of the coal plant closings. That's amazing. Yeah. Now, uh, it depends, because sometimes when the state owns uh, something, there's more corruption, right? It depends on the country, it depends on the circumstances, but since somebody's going to make money out of it somehow, 
uh, with the state being able to assign that, it sometimes leads to greater corruption, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a mixed bag, but uh, you know, at the same time, a lot of states own their own uh, natural resources, oil, coal, etc. The U.S. is so taken over by corporations that in some parts of the Gulf, even though it's the oil of, of the United States and of, our, of the taxpayers, the private companies take the oil and give us zero dollars. They give us nothing. That's just theft is all it is. Mm -hmm. Except they bribe the politicians, so legalize, it's legalized bribery. So they say, okay, here, just keep taking it. To take it for free. Whereas some other countries, they say, hey, look, you can do a profitable oil business here, and you know we need to help with private, some private corporations do the drilling, etc. So we'll give you 10%. Now, do they not do it? Do the companies say, well, we're not doing it for 10%? No, they do it. You know why? Because they still make money. Right, of course. Right? Yeah. And then the country says, well, since it's our oil, we're going to keep 90%. And that percentage changes, right, in different countries for different reasons. But in the U.S., it's comical. Because in some parts of the country, it's 0%. Because our government doesn't work for us. So, you know, when some people say the U.S. is more corrupt than anywhere else, I wouldn't go that far. But there's some validity to how much we have legalized corruption in this country. The trains are rolling by and I can feel the ground rumbling Neath my feet as I am leaving my old home Now I'm glad to say that I won't miss the railroad yards or coal mines That blacken up this place I once belonged I'm looking for a place where it's clean and hardly dirty A place where I can breathe some clean, fresh air Marco Rubio, understand the problem that Marco Rubio has now. Uh, he has had done his apology tour to all the right-wingers about his immigration position. Uh, and now he has to give something back. Marco Rubio, caught in between this war that is being waged within the Republican Party now, between uh, establishment Republicans who want the party to be uh, able to compete on the national level, and the uh, so-called Tea Partiers, which is just another way of saying the Republican electoral base, which uh, wants their representatives to be clinically insane. Marco Rubio is attempting to uh, thread that needle. Uh, this guy has a lot of national ambition. And uh, here he is at a BuzzFeed Brews event in Washington, D.C., uh, speaking with BuzzFeed editor-in-chief Ben Smith. He's asked the question, uh, about uh, climate change. He dodges a lot of the question, but uh, the, the clip is actually longer than this, but let's play a short clip of it because uh, it's important to see how he's going to dance around this. He doesn't want to be, seen, doesn't want to be considered one of those climate deniers. He's, he's not willing to go into Senator Inhofe territory, but he also doesn't want to be seen as signing off on this idea that somehow uh, human beings have any type of impact on their environment and that uh, this isn't just God's purview. He's not going to say God. This is a lot of parallel with his uh, evolution comments. He's yes. like threading yes. that I'm needle. I'm no scientist, man. Uh, but here we go. 
Um, well, first of all, the climate's always changing. That's not the fundamental question. The fundamental question is whether man-made activity is, the, is what's contributing most to it. Now, understand, this is the fallback position, right? Uh, yeah, okay, climate change exists because that is now categorically undeniable. I'm not going to raise the fact that this had been modeled by scientists in the, uh, in the past. I'm not going to raise the issue that we know the amount of carbon that has been uh, emitted into the atmosphere over the past hundred years has, has jumped um, exponentially as determined by ice core samples. I'm not going to mention any of that. I'm just going to say, like, hey, okay, I'm, I'm on board with the climate's changing. But do we really think it's man or maybe, in the unspoken word, of course, that the, um, the loonies here, it's just God just doing what he does. And I, I understand that people say there's a significant scientific consensus on that issue, but I've actually seen reasonable debate on that, per, on that principle. Okay, so I understand that, uh, yes, there's all these scientists lined up, so I want you uh, people who are not insane to, to understand that I'm one of you, but I've also been reading WorldNet Daily, and apparently there's a lot of other questions about it, too. Beyond it, the secondary question is, is there anything government can do about that that will actually make a difference? In essence, you know, we can pass a law that prohibits X. It has this dollar impact on our economy, which is devastating. Now here what he's doing is he's saying, now, in the event that people think that I'm crazy for uh, arguing against what is uh, scientific consensus, let me just say that the cost is going to be catastrophic to our environment, uh, to our economy. Now, there's absolutely no evidence for that claim either. In fact, uh, we've seen the implication of what the uh, investment in uh, green technology has done for our economy in this country. It was a major part of the stimulus bill, and it certainly helped to uh, keep our economy afloat. And to the extent that it's afloat at this point, <clears throat> there's also no evidence to suggest that uh, if we uh, that if we cut down on our carbon use and uh, create uh, economic activity, I mean, Germany is a prime example of a country which has had uh, serious economic benefits and absolutely no economic detriment to uh, pushing uh, their energy towards uh, green technology. Uh, but that's a much more reasonable sounding concern than uh, I saw a story on World Net Daily that said all of this was a hoax. But can you really, what is, what's the benefit of it? Will it have a direct impact on actually turning around these climate uh, changes that we're trying to address? Okay, so and there it is. So even if you don't accept my argument that we don't know if it's man-made, and even if you don't accept my argument that it's going to have catastrophic effects. Can people really do anything about this? I mean, I know that we managed to fix the hole in the ozone layer, but I mean, getting back to the part that if God wants it to heat up, it'll heat up. And that's where I think this whole thing breaks down. And that's it. That's the way he thinks this whole thing breaks down. Uh, so, uh, and, and earlier to this, he said, you know, but even if all of this is true, even if we could affect it, America's not the world. Just because we do it doesn't mean that it's going to impact China. Now, we know that China is already starting to address this. They may not want to sign on to Kyoto, but we know that they're already uh, starting to this. And we know that, for instance, in Britain, Lord Stern, the author of the Government Convention uh, Review on Climate Change that became a reference work for politicians and green campaigners, now says he underestimated his, the, the risks. 
This is uh, from him at Davos recently. Look, looking back, I underestimated the risk. The planet and the atmosphere seem to be absorbing less carbon than we expected. Emissions are rising pretty strongly. Some of the effects are coming through more quickly. His, public, his uh, report in 2006 pointed to a 75% chance that global temperatures would rise between 2 and 3 degrees. Now he's saying we know that they're closer to going to be 4. He backed the UK's Climate Change Act. Now, the UK, they're not the world. But apparently they're doing something. This is the way that a lunatic who's trying to um, appeal to the lunatic fringe so he can get through that primary in 2016, this is the way he does. And uh, in the same way that he said, I'm no scientist, man. I don't know about this, uh, how the world began. But uh, good luck to you, Rubio. There's a lot of other things that are going to prevent you from being president. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. Uh, just, uh, just to add to that, the original Stern report, too, was not like, eh, we should sort of probably do something about this. Like, the original report itself was, this is a catastrophic, universal threat to climate and economy. So the fact that he's saying it's worse than that, he's not pivoting off of something no, that no, was relatively no, no, mild, no. it was horrifying to saying, begin with. You know, my, you know how my hair was on fire before? Well, now I've lit my whole body on fire. That's basically it. Hi, I'm Sam Cedar. You may know me from my shows on Air America Radio, from filling in for Keith Olbermann on Countdown, or even, God forbid, my directing shows like Comedy Central's I'm With Busey. If not, you should really get to know me. Not personally, of course. I think we'd both find that uncomfortable. But if you're a fan of the best of the left like me, I think you'll enjoy my daily live show and podcast, The Majority Report, at Majority.fm. It's a daily dose of political news, analysis, and guests like Chris Hayes, Robert Reich, Digby, comedians like Mark Marin, Janine Garofalo, filmmakers like Morgan Spurlock and Lucy Walker, and on occasion, between my rants on raising taxes, ending wars, and decorporatizing our democracy, I can be mildly amusing. I'm unbought and unbossed daily on the Majority Report at Majority.fm. I mentioned the Permian extinction a couple of days ago. I just want to mention it one more time because somebody called earlier and 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 mentioned, you know, burning things. And and I was talking about contemporary sunlight versus ancient sunlight. And it's really just the last 150 years that we have been using ancient sunlight in a big way. It's the last thousand years that we've been using it, but it's just the last 150 years. And it's really the last 50 or so years that we've been putting so much of it into the atmosphere that we are reinventing the atmosphere to be the way it was before the Permian extinction. The Permian extinction was a period of time 250 million years ago when there was apparently a lot of volcanic activity in what is now Siberia, which heated up the planet by 5 degrees Celsius. That, in turn, heated the oceans, which, in turn, melted the methane hydrate crystals around the seacoasts. Hundreds of billions, maybe trillions of tons of, of, of methane frozen under the, under the surface of the sea, uh, decomposed plant matter, decomposed you know, aquatic plant matter. And that, that methane bubbled up, this is the soda pop hypothesis, that methane bubbled up into the atmosphere, and uh, I read about this in my book, The Edison Gene, in fact, there's a chapter on this, uh, and, and added another five degrees of global warming, because methane is an incredibly potent greenhouse gas. That 
total 10 degree warming of the planet was enough to kill off 95% of all life on this planet. 95% of all life in the oceans, 95% of all life on land. And what came out of that was the dinosaurs. They appeared after the Permian extinction. And then, of course, they got knocked out by the Earth being struck by, by a meteorite that's you know stuck in the ground down near Cancun. And that was 65 million years ago at the end of the Jurassic period. But, but the Permian extinction, 95%. What we know about that now is that endogenous, you know, within the, within the Earth forces, this, this massive volcanic activity produced the first five degrees of warming. And then the second five degrees of warming, well, it was also endogenous. It was also came from the Earth, but it was a consequence of the sea warming up and all this methane being released. Well, all that methane is back in the sea again. It's been 250 million years since the, since the Earth was that warm. So it's all back down there as methane hydrate. In fact, there are some oil companies that are trying to drill out some of it. And one of the projections is that if we keep burning fossil fuels the way we are, by the end of this century, we will have warmed the planet by 5 degrees Celsius. And that is a bad enough thing in and of itself. I mean, Australia right now is in flames as a consequence of global warming. But if that then triggers the soda pop, the methane in the oceans, to, to warm the planet at another 5 degrees, we will see the extinction of the human race. And that's not good. At least that's not good if you're a fan of the human race. And I am. And of, you know, all the other life on Earth as well. So that's, that's that. It's the The American Legislative Exchange Council, these are the guys that create the model legislation. They all get together at a conference. Corporations get a chance to sit with legislators on the state and federal level and say, hey, this is exactly the kind of legislation we'd love to see. And so they get that introduced in states around the country. They've already gotten this, this Environmental Literacy Improvement Act passed in Texas and Louisiana and Tennessee. Now they're trying to get it passed in Arizona, Colorado, and Oklahoma. And, you know, not only is it trying to teach essentially what is religion in science class, they're trying to teach intelligent design, they're trying to find ways to minimize or undermine the teaching of evolution and the teaching of climate science, which also has long-term implications, you mm -hmm. know, for the employment prospects of these children that they're teaching these, you know, incorrect concepts. You know, there is now no doubt uh, evolution is established. There is some uh, uncertainty in climate science, but there is no doubt the global scientific community is pretty much united that this is happening. And the fact that they're trying to undermine the science curriculum in these public schools is pretty dangerous because these kids later on, when they go to apply to colleges, when they go to apply to you know engineering or math or science, hey, I don't know, it would help if they actually knew the kinds of things that are going to actually help them get through to their degrees in college. You know, big oil, coal, it's incredible how powerful they are and how much of an impact 
that they're having, not only on our environment, but on our politicians. You know, nine Democrats in our Senate just recently wrote a letter, uh, and by the way, it was nine Democrats, but in total it was 53 U.S. Senators that wrote a letter to Obama urging him to sign the permit for uh, the construction of the Keystone Pipeline. Right. Right? And the reason why that's happening is because they're pouring a tremendous amount of money into these politicians' campaigns. They're funding them. Their pockets are fat with, you know, big oil money. So I feel like we're constantly fighting this uphill battle. They're indoctrinating our students. Okay, we did a story just earlier this week about how um, a, a new law in Texas allows educators to teach the Bible in class. And they're not doing so in an objective way. They're indoctrinating the students by telling them, you know, this is right, you should follow this, you're going to go to hell if you don't. Um, and, and now you have Alec pushing these laws that basically deny you know, what conventional wisdom is uh, among scientists when it comes to climate change. Yeah, and it has, you know, like I said, dangerous long-term implications because, yeah. you know, what we need now, we already know that we are running short uh, the future of, of uh, engineering and math and science and technology, you know, that, that enrollment is down at the college level in these really important areas of study. And coming up, when we are moving into an area where we need to increase our clean energy, our renewable energy, our, our, our technology, our innovation, that to have this undermining of actual science education for people who are essentially just still fighting the culture wars. Yep. It has very long-term uh, implications for our ability to compete globally when we're not going to have people who actually understand science and technology and engineering. So this is a little bit of a tangent, but I'm curious to see what you think. Uh, there was a new report released about how China burns more coal than the rest of the world combined. So when it comes to the question of climate change, how do you tackle such an international problem? Because sure, we can definitely change our behavior here in the United States. We could hold oil companies accountable. We could come up with renewable energy, but how do you convince other countries like China to do that? Well, you know, it's a really difficult situation that we're in because we have not tried at all as the United States to lead the world on this, this critical issue that is looming and is actually already starting to happen. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the way that you do it is you go first. You know, the United States, who's gone first in all innovation and almost all innovation, I should say, uh, that, that Having, say, for example, John Kerry now be our Secretary of State, he's a noted climate hawk. Mm -hmm. He's actually gotten up in front of, on the Senate floor and said many, many times that we need to take action on climate change. So perhaps with his leadership in the international community, that can help move other countries forward. But China and India are not going to... Uh, stop their growth if we don't do something as the United States, the world's biggest polluter, as well. You know, China has surpassed us on a total uh, carbon dioxide pollution uh, factor, but as, as far as individuals, we have the highest per capita emissions. And to have this be something where we have to try to convince other countries that, yeah, we're going to do it, we're, we're going to get around to that soon, while they're trying to actually lift their citizens out of poverty. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that China has a billion people, and, and there are a billion people around the world who don't even have electricity right now. So requiring them to, to curb their own economic growth while we sit and do nothing mm -hmm. and actually have fights over whether or not it's actually happening in the first place even though everybody else you know agrees that it is you know we, we put ourselves into a really difficult position
Here at Best of the Left, supporting the good works of others is our entire reason for existence. Since the beginning of 2006, I've been making this show to highlight what I consider to be some of the best of the truly liberal media. Now I'm working on several ways to promote the best progressive activism around. Ruminate for a moment on whether you enjoy this show or consider its goals to be worthwhile, and if you do, please consider supporting this work by becoming a member for as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year at the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. It's the donations of members that allow the show to continue and continue to improve. Thanks so much for your support. Another day, another media outlet talking about the serious effects of climate change without mentioning climate change. This time it was the New York Times, and the issue on January 18th was the severe drought conditions affecting the Mississippi River. The article talks about the enormous efforts that are required to keep the river flowing, but nothing about what might be causing much of the problem in the first place. An Australian paper, the Sydney Morning Herald, had a very different take on the very same story. Their headline was, Climate Change Adds to Mississippi's Toll. Now, the Times reporter who wrote this piece, John Schwartz, saw our critique at the FAIR blog, and he found it a little unfair. He did, in fact, talk about how shifting weather patterns are part of what we should expect from climate change. Well, where did he write this, we wondered. He explained in a separate sidebar piece that wasn't in the newspaper, but appeared on a Times blog. That only reinforces the point we were making in the first place. The idea that climate change is part of the story that you don't put in the paper but mention on a website that is likely seen by far fewer readers only underscores that the paper of record is saying climate change is a secondary issue. people fighting against this. You recall that we had on this program Bill McKibben, who was, um, who was on tour with his Do the Math tour, specifically targeting universities uh, and college students, because they're the ones who are going to have to deal with this, um, with the implications of our non-action now. Encouraging uh, a movement to divest from institutions, particularly higher education institutions to begin with, from their holdings in big oil companies and carbon producing companies that are essentially for lack of a better term poisoning um, our world's climate and I don't know if this is directly related to it but I imagine it is yesterday <clears throat> in Westboro Massachusetts right on Route 9 not far from my hometown of Worcester Eight college students, activists, occupied the TransCanada offices. These are, this is the company that is um, pushing the Keystone XL pipeline, which, as you know, as we speak, 
the states of Texas and I believe Oklahoma are grabbing land via eminent domain claiming that there's a uh, common carrier protection for the Trans-Canada Keystone XL pipeline. Now, it's carrying, or will, they hope, this uh, very viscous tar sands oil, if you could call it that, basically down to the Gulf of Mexico to be refined and then shipped to other places. So I don't know how this is uh, somehow follows the common carrier laws of uh, these states, but they've managed to finagle it. They're building the second half of the pipeline, waiting for federal approval of the first half of this pipeline that would cross the Canadian-U.S. Uh, borders. So uh, these eight college students, to show solidarity with protesters in Houston, Texas, amongst other places, Members of a uh, climate action network, including 350.org, that's Bill McKibben's uh, organization, and Students for a Just and Stable Future. They come from universities Brandeis, Tufts, Harvard, University of New Hampshire, and BU. They launched a website in tandem with today's action. We'll put a link to that on uh, majority.fm. These eight college students entered in packs of two and three just after 2 p.m. yesterday in Westboro. They sat in a circular formation with their backs touching. They began to click in. They put themselves in uh, bike locks and glued their hands together with, with crazy glue. By 2.10, the crew members were fully chained and glued to one another with fast-drying adhesive dripping from their hands and their bike locks. They were ultimately removed from the Trans-Canada offices and taken to the Westboro Police Station about four hours later. And uh, coming up, January 23rd and 26th, a coalition of activists known as the Tar Sands Free Northeast are preparing to block a plan to transport tar sands oil through New England. Canadian activists with the Idle No More movement have protested Keystone XL pipeline uh, and 350.org has announced a 20-person rally against uh, Keystone XL to be held on February 17th at the White House. So uh, there are members of our community who are fighting against this. Those, those students are to be applauded, and I hope more of them uh, are joined. We'll put up uh, a link uh, to their site and to these other actions that are taking place at uh, majority.fm. But um, this goes out to them. The mission of this show is to aggregate and amplify the best voices of the truly liberal media, and now you can play a critical role in helping fulfill that mission. I pick out the best clips I hear to share with you, and now you can do just the same thing extremely easily. Now available at bestoftheleft.com, each clip I play is made available individually with simple buttons that allow you to share your favorites on your networks through Facebook, Twitter, by email, and beyond. By myself, I can amplify this content to thousands of people, but collectively, we have the potential to reach millions. No kidding. Become your own media activist by taking one minute to share your favorite content a couple of days each week, help more people plug into the truly liberal media, and be an integral part of this extremely virtuous cycle. Thanks so much for your help.
So the Independent has an interesting story about uh, the amount of money being spent on fighting the science of climate change. In fact, overall $500 million have been spent trying to disprove climate change or more accurately smear the people who make the case for climate change. In other words, the scientists. You can't really disprove it and the great majority of the world's scientists are on that side but you can spend a lot of money to try to muddy up the issue. So the independent has tracked some of this money so it turns out there's two groups that are getting a lot of this money it's the donors trust and their sister group donors capital fund so the money is being funneled to there and they funnel it to the anti-climate science people and uh... one of the groups that gives the money to the donors trust and donors capital fund turns out to be the knowledge and progress fund and who are they financed by well you can see it right there and i know you're not surprised Charles and David Koch. Of course! So, uh, how much money have they given so far to the Knowledge and Progress Fund, who then funnels it to the Donors Trust, who then pretends that, oh my God, some of the scientists are totally against climate science, climate change. $1.25 million to donors in 2007, another $1.25 million in 2008, and $2 million in 2010. Of course, uh, Coke Industries is a large oil, gas, and chemicals conglomerate based in Kansas. But I'm sure that has nothing to do with the millions of dollars that they are pouring in to this campaign to convince the world that climate change isn't happening when 98% of the world's scientists agree that it is. And that's how our politics gets corrupted, gets perverted, and we go down the wrong road because people have a financial incentive to lead us down the road in their direction and against what is true and real. Life is older, older than the trees, younger than the mountains, growing like a breeze. Country roads take me home to the place. I got to tell you, I am stunned by this item from Joe Rome at Climate Progress this week. Washington Post, the day after the State of the Union address on Wednesday, listed the percentages of the speech that was devoted to the various topics that President Obama brought up. They listed six different topics, and despite the fact that climate change and energy issues took up some 10% of the speech, Washington Post failed to even mention it in their top of the front page banner. Yeah, it was remarkable, frankly. Apparently, the Washington Post has single-handedly made climate change disappear. Yes, and despite the Washington Post, climate change hasn't disappeared and was actually quite prominent in the State of the Union address. The fact is, the 12 hottest years on record have all come in the last 15. Heat waves, droughts, wildfires, Floods, all are now more frequent and more intense. We can choose to believe that Superstorm Sandy and, and the most severe drought in decades and the worst wildfires some states have ever seen were all just a freak coincidence, or we can choose to believe in the overwhelming judgment of science and act before it's too late. Now, the good news is we can make meaningful progress on this issue while driving strong economic growth. but. 
If Congress won't act soon to protect future generations, I will. So even though Republicans say they will obstruct congressional action, President Obama can act through executive action, like through the Environmental Protection Agency, which is required by law to reduce emissions from existing coal-fired power plants. They haven't yet due to industry pushback. Obama did propose innovative policies, channeling revenue from oil and gas royalties to clean energy development through what he called an energy security trust, and he made a big move on energy efficiency. Let's cut in half the energy wasted by our homes and businesses over the next 20 years. That alone will cut our emissions in the United States by 30%. While Obama immediately pivoted to promoting domestic production of fossil fuels in his all-of-the-above mantra, meanwhile, Florida Senator Marco Rubio's Republican response to the State of the Union was full of Romney campaign anti-science denial and straw men. When we point out that no matter how many job-killing laws we pass, our government can't control the weather... He accuses us of wanting dirty water and dirty air. I don't recall Obama ever saying that. No, actually, that was me who said that. (laughs) But despite Republican obstructionism, polls show that the American public actually wants Obama to act on climate change. A poll conducted by the League of Conservation Voters just prior to the speech showed two-thirds of Americans want him to act now on climate change. Meanwhile, activists are turning up the heat. On Wednesday, nearly 50 people were arrested after chaining themselves to the White House fence to protest the proposed Keystone XL pipeline. Those arrested included Robert F. Kennedy Jr., 350.org's Bill McKibben, and Michael Brune, CEO of the Sierra Club. This is the first time in the Sierra Club's 120-year history that the leader has been arrested. They recently changed their policy about protests and appear to now be taking a much more active role in actually uh, raising some hell about this stuff. Good for the Sierra Club. That's why I'm gonna sit in till you give in and give me all of your love. Yes, I'm gonna sit in till you give in and give me all of your love. No use resisting, I'll keep insisting. Stop your conniving, girl, I ain't jiving. It's inspiring that leaders of the environmental movement are risking arrest to draw attention to the problem of global warming. This week, right in front of the White House, 350.org's Bill McKibben, NASA's James Hansen, Bobby Kennedy Jr., Daryl Hannah, and even the NAACP's Julian Bond were all among a group that got hauled off for staging a sit-in outside the gates of the White House. They were pleading with President Obama not to go ahead with the Keystone XL pipeline. Interestingly enough, he didn't mention that in his State of the Union address. Yeah, he had strong words about the need to take action on climate change, and he debunked the deniers, and he talked about boosting solar and wind energy. But in the very same breath, practically, he said he was speeding up new oil and gas permits. That's only going to heat up the planet more, and it suggests that he may in fact push ahead with the Keystone XL pipeline, which is why it's so important that environmental activists are putting themselves on the line. And it's not just the veteran practitioners of civil disobedience. No, it's the heads of the most established green groups, like the Sierra Club and the NRDC, that have been out at the White House gates with other concerned citizens. That's the kind of street heat 
that offers the best chance to cool this planet down. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. Those people, they got nothing in their souls, and they make our TVs blind us from our vision and our goals. Over the trigger of time, it tricks you, so you have no way to grow. But do you know that tonight the streets are? Let's talk um, also about uh, about the climate change. Uh, the president addressed it, and it was this was I don't know. I was left a little bit uh, wanting here, and particularly uh, today when people, as we speak, are being arrested outside the White House uh, protesting uh, the Keystone XL pipeline. Let's play this clip. Um, uh, this is number three of the president. Uh, um, calling on Congress to do something about climate change and then saying if you don't, well, here it is. And over the last four years, our emissions of the dangerous carbon pollution that threatens our planet have actually fallen. But for the sake of our children and our future, we must do more to combat climate change. Now, it's true that no single event makes a trend, but the fact is the 12 hottest years on record have all come in the last 15. Heat waves, droughts, wildfires, floods, all are now more frequent and more intense. We can choose to believe that Superstorm Sandy and, and the most severe drought in decades and the worst wildfires some states have ever seen were all just a freak coincidence. Or we can choose to believe in the overwhelming judgment of science and act before it's too late. And he went on to say... Uh Congress has to do some action. If it doesn't, then I'm going to uh, do some uh, action by executive order. Uh, now, these things, it doesn't necessarily have to follow in that order, does it? Uh, it doesn't have to follow in that order. Um, you know, I don't know the exact logic there, but I guess, um, yeah, maybe the executive orders are more controversial, but he'll do it. Uh, if he needs to, I don't know. But th that was a brilliant part of his speech. Also, one of the things that uh, we, you know, we actually uh, did a joint mini campaign with a new group called Forecast the Facts, which is a couple of environmental, uh, really smart environmental organizers who are trying to get weathermen, meteorologists, to acknowledge in their weather reporting that climate change is relevant to what they're reporting on. And it was crazy watching this historic blizzard being covered on TV with almost no, almost no one acknowledging um, that, that fact. So um, the fact that the president used his megaphone to educate millions of people and get him to connect the dots, I think is a really positive sign and a really good use of that bully pulpit. Yeah, I was impressed by that too. The 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 the, the it wasn't as um, 
it, it wasn't a poetic reference, uh, you know, uh, the uh, the seas rising, whatnot. It was really a a very sort of, um, in, you know, I mean, he d he delivered it well, but it was a very dry, data driven uh, plea for um, some type of action here. And um, I hope that this he's setting the groundwork to basically uh, say no to the Keystone XL pipeline because. Um, by if you if you believe the overwhelming uh, scientific consensus, then you have to stop uh, these tar sands uh, from being exploited in this way, uh, because it's just going to release so much uh, carbon into the atmosphere that it's going to be, as James Hansen said, game over. The largest climate rally in U.S. history took place on Sunday in Washington, D.C., yep. and it was covered on exactly zero of the Sunday chat shows, according to Fairness and Accuracy and Reporting. Yeah, the Sunday news shows haven't caught up with the rest of us yet, but the network news shows did cover the climate rally, and that's a point in their favor. They gave it a few words, not nearly enough, frankly, especially when you've got 35,000 people gathered in the freezing cold in D.C. to protest. I bet if those were tea partiers, it would have been across every single Sunday show and every single network news. Well, it was indeed a huge rally. An estimated 35 to 50,000 people turned out in the bitter cold to demand President Barack Obama reject the controversial Keystone XL pipeline project. The Forward on Climate rally organized by the Sierra Club and 350.org with over a dozen satellite rallies in cities around the country demonstrated the widespread support for the president to deny the cross-border permit to the pipeline. They say the president must reject the pipeline to show he is serious about taking action on climate change. Here's former White House Green Jobs Advisor Van Jones. All the good that you have done, all the good you can imagine doing, will be wiped out, wiped out by floods, by fires, by superstorms, if you fail to act now to deal with this crisis that is a gun. A gun pointed at the head of the future. Now, they say the Keystone XL is both a symbol and a matter of principle. As Grist.org put it, quote, we must cease making large long-term capital investments in new fossil fuel infrastructure that locks in dangerous emission levels for many decades. And the most recent poll from the League of Conservation Voters shows two-thirds of Americans want Obama to act to address climate change. In an online video chat late last week, President Obama sounded like he will act. We have to do something that's really difficult for any society to do, and that is to take actions now where the benefits are going to be coming down the road, or at least we're going to be avoiding big problems down the road. However, after a disappointing meeting with White House staffers on whether Obama would use executive action to establish emission standards for existing power plants, Philip Bump of Grist warns, don't hold your breath. 
I guess it depends on which Obama decides to show up and how strong the public pressure is on him. You know, we're coming up on the 10th anniversary of the Iraq War. That was a disaster that could have been averted had we paid attention to the largest protests of all times. The fact that the media still is not giving proper deference to these huge protests suggests that, well, we are likely to make the very same mistake once again. This is Megan from Cincinnati. Um, I just got finished listening to your drone strike podcast, the the latest one. And it was like, I noticed that you said something about the diehard Obama supporters. Ever since I've, you know, been voting, I've voted Democrat. um, And I do kind of think it's one of those that it's the lesser of two evils. And I think with criticizing the president, especially around where I live, you kind of run into a lot of people that the Republican going, well, see, we told you he was bad. And I think that's why a lot of people either get defensive or a little hesitant to, even though we do disagree with some of his policies, such as the drone strikes and, and things, things of that nature. Um, so I, I think there is quite, you know, a reason to disagree with, or to, um, not disagree with, but to not criticize him as much just for the backlash that you do get from the people that vote on the other side. I love your show. Keep up the good work. Hi, Jay. This is Eric from uh, Greenville, North Carolina. Uh, Colin, I've been listening to the show for a while. You asked for some supporters of Obama to comment on the drones. And I actually, uh, you know, there was a part of your show that was kind of interesting to me about drones where they were talking about the oath of allegiance and uh, the idea of protecting against threats foreign and domestic and also the uh, obligation to protect the citizens of the United States. Well, I think that when you're talking about a citizen of the United States who uh, whether they go to another country or even, you know, quote-unquote defect and, and start working against the United States, they're still technically a citizen of the U.S. So I believe that they should still be covered under the Constitution of the U.S. They should still have uh, some form of a protection from us in the way of due process, and we shouldn't just be uh, outright sending drones or hit squads or any any other sort of uh, kill list tactics after these people. Uh, also, the the portion where you were asking about the supporters of Obama who uh, maybe thought it wasn't okay to say bad things about Obama during the election and, and even now because there's inevitably going to be another election and Democrats should stand by the person in office. I, I disagree with that and I think that that's a mentality that can get us into very big trouble with the government because my point of view is that whether it's a Democrat or a Republican in office, they have the ability uh, and the power to either uh, do some very good things or some very bad things and just because they happen to fall in the party line that I most likely uh, will support, it doesn't mean that they, they're going to do everything right. I think it's very important for uh, people within their own parties to hold their representatives accountable and I think that uh, uh, liberals and Democrats happen to be a little bit better than that 
at that than Republicans do, who tend to uh, point the finger at, at their Democratic counterparts and say that it, you know they're the ones to blame. I'd also like to uh, close by saying that listening to the show the past couple times, it's been very nice to hear uh, uh, several clips from liberal news being played where they're they're pretty much. Um, you know, uh, outright attacking Obama and, and some of the policies he's been implementing. I think that's a good thing. I think it's very important that it's not just one-sided on each, on each end of the news spectrum and that we're, we're holding ourselves accountable as well. Thanks. Hi, Jay. This is Barry from Baltimore uh, calling about the second drone podcast. I uh, just wanted to say that I think that I, I'm not a fervent Obama supporter and that I don't believe that everything he's doing is right. But I do think that we need to give more more nuanced consideration to the drone program and to the decisions that the White House is making. I would say that your distinction between that which is constitutional and that which is moral is a difficult distinction to make. For example, it can be constitutional and immoral and vice versa, And I think that we need to focus on constitutional. I think that is our responsibility as citizens. And I look at the white paper or the memo that was released to Michael Isikoff, and I say, if there had been information in there that gave a concise and agreed-upon definition to imminent threat, and if there were some sort of judicial and or legislative overview of each person being put on that kill list, then I think it would certainly be constitutional, could, could arguably be constitutional, and would certainly be moral to kill U.S. citizens in that situation. And I do think that there is a difference between what's constitutional and what's moral when it comes to non-U.S. citizens as well. So I just want to put that out there. I think it can be easy to act as if these are simple, these are questions with simple answers. And I don't think they are. I think we need to understand what the alternatives would be and how many Americans would die if attacks like the Fort Hood attack were allowed to continue or attacks like the attempted Christmas Day underwear bomber were, were, were allowed to continue to be attempted. So just want to put it out there. I think it's terrific to have these conversations. I think we just have to keep our minds open to complex and subtle answers and uh, not be George Bush and say, I don't do new ones. Alrighty, man. Thanks for the great show. Look forward to the next one. Take care. Yes, my name is Irene Ennis. I am currently in the middle of Louisiana. I was just calling about the current episode about the, the drone strikes and killing U.S. citizens because they're terrorists, quote unquote. You know, they called the young gentleman in Colorado who shot up the theater and is obviously mentally ill a terrorist. And what concerns me is that if they are allowed to continue to do this, um, when will they start targeting U.S. citizens on U.S. soil? Because they can deem them terrorists. Um, if you disagree with your government, does that make, them, make you a terrorist? You know, I just really feel uncomfortable with this notion that any one person in our government should be allowed to target U.S. citizens without due process of law. Anyway, that's all. It just really concerns me, and I think we're headed down a really bad road. Thanks again for everything you do. Bye.
Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or our activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the new number to dial is 202-999-3991. So I'm still not hearing a full-throated endorsement of the current Obama administration policy on drone strikes, either against foreign enemies or U.S. citizens living abroad or potentially even U.S. citizens living domestically. But I'm positive they're out there. Someone, you know, a big Obama supporter, progressive on other every other issue, I would agree with them, you know, on, on everything else. But they think that this policy is really great as it is. I'm sure there is someone out there. I would love to hear from them. Uh, or a conservative who doesn't agree with Obama on anything else but likes this policy. I would love to hear from them too. Uh, you know, it's certainly not that I, I think that I could be swayed from my position. I mean, of course, no one ever thinks they're going to change their mind. If they thought that, they would probably just go ahead and do it. But I, I really do have an interest in learning why people think what they think. You know, I, I'm always fascinated to understand why conservatives think what they think, even if it has very rarely, if ever, made me change my mind on whatever the issue is. You know, it doesn't sway me to their side. But it's a great insight to know. And so, uh, you know, if, if anyone believes in the current drone attack policy, I would love to hear from them. Or if anyone would just like to speculate on the thinking behind why we are going through with this in, in such a way that is so clearly subverting the system that we theoretically have in place to protect the individual rights of people from being uh, summarily murdered by their government. I would love to hear that too. So the number again, 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show, especially either by becoming a member or making one-time donations to the show. That is absolutely how the program survives. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all of that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C. My name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Oh, we'll take you out.